We have a president that wants to expand dirty forms of energy like coal that employ increasingly few people and are terrible for the environment. The world is laughing at us. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, get commercial-free versions of every episode, and occasional members-only bonus content, visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, The Bradcast, The David Pakman Show, Ring of Fire Radio, The Majority Report, Intercepted, and This Is Hell. This week, Donald Trump uh, signed a slew of executive orders paving the way to destroy virtually all of Barack Obama's climate change and environmental actions and executive orders. Here are some of the biggest changes that Trump has in store for us. The first is uh, paving the way to eliminate the clean power plan. So it's difficult to overstate how important the clean power plan is in terms of uh, our commitment to reaching uh, the goals set by the Paris Climate Accord. Um, to taking responsibility for the future change in, uh, in uh, global temperatures. Uh, but here's what it is. The Clean Power Plan was a major EPA rule aiming to cut emissions from existing U.S. power plants 32% below 2005 levels by 2030. Now, that is just a part of what's necessary for us to uh, cut our total carbon emissions enough to avoid catastrophic uh, climate change. But it's very important. It's a set of stringent um, requirements for existing uh, power plants, and they are going to do what they can to destroy it based on this uh, executive order. The next is also important, uh, changing carbon standards for new coal plants. So Obama had fairly stringent regulations on existing power plants and even more stringent ones on new coal-fired power plants. Uh, it basically made it uh, economically unfeasible to create new coal uh, power plants, which is important. And it helped over the past few years to phase out something, something like 15,000 megawatts of uh, coal-powered electricity generation has gone away over the past couple of years. One of the things uh, affecting that. Now, again, they can't just immediately get rid of those, but they can drastically change the requirements, change definitions in a way getting rid of these regulations. Uh, the next is uh, methane emissions regulations. One of the best things that Obama did uh, for the environment was uh, changing the abilities of companies to just simply release uh, methane into the atmosphere. Now, methane is uh, smaller by volume in terms of how much we emit, but its actual effect on uh, global climate change is even stronger per unit volume. And so they're going to potentially destroy that, make it easier for com companies to simply emit it. And uh, we actually saw in California not too long ago a massive uh, uh, methane leak and you can see the damage that it does almost in real time, basically. So here's a quote uh, from one of the articles covering this in the New York Times. Earlier this month, the EPA announced it was withdrawing a rule that required existing oil and gas well operators to provide information about methane emissions. So when you remove that rule, uh, now they can emit all the methane they want, and they don't have to tell you about it. So that's basically saying... Have at it, Hoss. Yeah. Okay, I didn't play that. So. <laughs> it just sort of works. <laughs> yeah. Um, isn't that amazing? This methane that we is, shouldn't even know. That's even more damaging than carbon. They're like, I, think I don't like want to know. I don't want to just. You, hey, are you making money? You made an extra five bucks. Who cares? Put all the methane you want into the air. Yeah. 
Uh, we, the American people need, don't need to know. What do we represent the American people? No, we represent exactly. companies. No, actually, you represent the American people. That's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed yeah. to find out on our behalf. Hiding that information, great for the companies, bad for you. My recollection is that it's 86 times more damaging to the environment, but don't quote me on that. Look it up. Uh, Obama had set a, re- a goal of reducing methane emissions 40% below 2012 uh, levels by 2025. Um, and they were going to do different things to detect plug leaks and all of that. God knows what's going to happen to that uh, that limit uh, in the next few years. Uh, the next is uh, changing the uh, calculations of the social cost of carbon. So this is really interesting. doesn't get talked about much. But back in 2009, Obama's White House gathered a dozen agencies together and tried to assign a dollar value to the cost of emitting a ton of carbon dioxide, taking into account scientific modeling on the damage caused by access um uh, Aspects of global warming, such as droughts and floods, they settled on a central estimate of around $36 per ton in 2015, rising over time. It's expected that it's actually far more costly than that, but they were starting somewhere. They might well just get rid of that entirely, thanks to this new uh, executive order by Donald Trump. Uh, Let me just jump in there, too. I love that. I think that's a great idea, because that's about the free market. Now, I know Republicans say, oh, no, for the right. No, you're not. You're a crony capitalist. You just want to help these companies no matter how much it hurts everyone else. So if you create a product and it has a byproduct, you should pay for the cost of that byproduct. You shouldn't force the public to pay for that cost. You shouldn't pay the whole world to pay for that cost. We didn't profit off your product. You did. So you should bear the actual cost of your product. Yeah, exactly. So like, let's say it's your two neighbors real quick. One of them is making a lot of money from doing something in his property, but all of the junk from that, the pollution or whatever else goes into your house. And he says, I don't care. That's going to kill your kids or whatever it is. Well, then you should pay thousands of dollars to clean it up. But wait, I didn't make any money off of it. You're the one who made the money, and you're making me pay the cost. So, yeah, so what? And the crony capitalists, that is the Republican Party, come in and go, well, that guy gave me campaign donations, and yeah. you didn't. So you suffer the cost, and he takes all the profits. Yeah. That's not free market. It's also obviously not fair. If you make a product, and it has a byproduct that costs a lot, you should pay that cost. Yeah, and in, in terms of pollution, like that's a metaphor. It's also literally what's happening right now, and they want to double down on that. Uh, next, uh, they want to eliminate the moratorium on federal coal leasing. There's huge areas of the U.S. with coal reserves that uh, had been being leased out to coal companies at basically far lower than market costs, subsidizing uh, the cost of uh, digging up this coal and then burning it. Obama stopped all of that. He's put a moratorium on it uh, pre- for a period of a few years. We're not going to do it. Now they're simply going to open that up, and that's one of the things that they can do basically today if they want. Uh, the next is uh, investigating anything, anything that inhibits energy production. It is actually that broad. They want the, the every one of these organizations to look at every rule, every regulation in any way that could inhibit energy production of any kind. That's the sort of toddlerish language they're using. And what it actually means is inhibit. Uh, the profits of our campaign contributors. Exactly. We will not allow it. We have to remove all of those inhibitors. Yeah. And then you guys are going to pay the cost, but hey, you never donated to Republicans, so that's your problem, not my problem. Exactly. Uh, finally, two things that aren't in this. Uh, it doesn't say whether they're going to, uh, to remove themselves from the Paris Climate, Paris Climate Accords, and they haven't yet categorically taken away the EPA's ability to regulate carbon emissions uh, as an environmental pollutant. Those are two of the big boys, and they might be coming. Okay, and finally in this regard, 
Uh, let's just think this through for a second. As they explain in the beginning of the of every article that covers this, this is about as John laid out the emissions for rules for power plants, limits on methane leaks, moratorium on federal coal leasing, use of social cost of carbons, etc. Now, as you look at that entire list, does anyone think that the Republicans would ever make any of that stuff safer? And say, okay, now corporations, you're gonna have to pay a little bit more here because we don't want that poison in the air because it affects us all and it affects our children. Now, so let's let's do a balancing act here. Some of this stuff we're gonna do less regulation. Some of this stuff we're gonna do more regulation because we studied it. Mm -hmm. No one expects that. If you do, you're a fool. And of course, they never deliver that. All they ever do is less regulation, less costs on companies, more costs on you. Every single time. And including this case, every single rule that they pass was for less safety, less protection of consumers, and for more maximizing profit for the corporations that donated to them. The current system is designed for profit, not human needs. The people must rise up and revolt the human need over profit. There's something wrong when they say separation of church and state to swear you in on the Bible to be president or take the stand. And the demand for free health care and education and jobs for all the paper bills could be met with the creation of tax and the super rich. Taking some millions from their place, placing the military budget with big cuts would change the nation. They got health care in Europe and Canada. Presently, they don't have as many in jail and they don't have the death penalty. As it's being reported, you know, this is Trump's attempt to undermine climate policies, specifically Obama's climate policies, his regulations, and frankly, his legacy when it comes to his uh, environmental legacy. But the entire performance yesterday was was put forward as a way to to bring coal jobs back, which, as we discussed yesterday, ain't happening, ain't going to happen since the world is now moving on from coal. And not because of some kind of Obama war on coal. I wish we had such a uh, a war on coal, but because but because natural gas is cheaper and cleaner when it comes to uh, to power plants. Coal cannot really compete on the free market, and the coal that is out there is increasingly mined by automation techniques that don't require as much manpower. And oh yeah, then there's the renewable energy revolution in solar and wind. That is resulting in hundreds of thousands of good jobs. And nonetheless, uh, since this is the Fox News administration, essentially a presidential uh, Fox News show in the guise of a president, um, you know, they're pretending that somehow Trump's signature is going to bring back coal mining. It's not. Uh, here's a, a quick montage of the EPA's administrator, Scott Pruitt, who hates the EPA, Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke, uh, Energy Secretary Rick Perry, who had no idea what the Energy Department did, and finally, Vice President Mike Pence, uh, speaking before Trump's announcement and, uh, and the signing of his so-called Energy Independence Executive Order yesterday at the, ironically enough, at the Environmental Protection Agency. You know, our nation can't run on pixie dust and hope. And the last eight years showed that. I can tell you the hallmark of a great president is one that takes decisive action. And that's exactly what our president did. The president, with his signature on that executive order, is going to set in motion government <laughs> reforms designed to continue promoting clean air and water for the American people. Coal jobs are the best jobs. 
And for some of our communities, coal jobs are the only jobs. This is a great day for energy independence and a growing American economy because the war on coal is over. Oh, thank God. Thank God that war is over. Desi Doyen, coal jobs are the best jobs. <laughs> yes. Did you know that? I know. I know. That was uh, he was quoting from a, uh, a coal miner in a coal mining community. They don't have any other jobs because all of the efforts in the Congress, especially uh, among in a Republican dominated Republican majority Congress, all of the efforts to put forth economic transition funding for coal country for Appalachia, that's all been voted down by Republicans. And there are many, many more jobs in solar and wind. Oh, yeah. Than, it's, uh, I think the latest statistic coal. that I saw based on the Department of Energy is uh, that renewable energy jobs outnumber fossil fuel jobs two to one. Oh, yeah. These days. At least. And that's not because of regulations. It's because it's cheaper and it continues to fall in price, even now being below coal in the cost of electricity generation. And people like it better. And it was amazing in that uh, entire thing yesterday, Trump did not talk about, uh, did not use the words climate, I don't think at all. Uh, certainly not global warming. Oh, he didn't. Uh, he didn't. I don't think he mentioned solar. He didn't he did mention not. wind. I watched any the whole of that thing. Stuff. He said nothing. None of them said anything. They kept talking about energy independence, but yet they cut out the growing sector of energy independence, which is homegrown wind and solar. Nonetheless, as we discussed yesterday, after seeing that entire fine affair, and frankly, after seeing the, the, the rest of the ways that Trump has tried and failed to do stuff, like his Muslim ban, repealing and replacing the, the dreaded Obama. Obamacare, I got to say, I am somewhat less alarmed by what they are trying to do here because they are not very good at it. They are just not good. They don't know what they are doing. They think that the stuff they told them on Fox News is actually true, is actually the way the world works. And they are learning piece by piece, policy by policy, that that is not the case. Um, also, I am a little bit less worried today because, uh, you know, the folks who have been standing up against this administration um, and uh, whether it's the public or, or the courts. But here in particular, we've got environmentalists and legal experts who suggest overturning these regulations that as Trump is trying to do, these regulations that took years to put in place. As based on existing legislation and in some cases court orders uh, going back years, that itself is going to take years and may end up preventing these regulations from being uh, reversed. They may, you know, be stopped by the courts entirely. And by way of just one more example of the, the difficulty that tr the Trump administration is likely to face in rolling back many of these regulations from the Obama era. And by the way, from before the Obama era, from, from the George W. Bush era, frankly, Amanda Marcotte over at Salon, uh, writes that the administration's claims about getting the EPA back to its core mission by rolling back regulations while at the same time again moving forward on energy production in the U.S. is, as Marcotte describes it, a bunch of nonsense. She writes, instead, the executive order is another example of the Trump administration's ignoring basic facts in service of a right-wing ideology rooted mostly in a blind, irrational hatred of Obama. Unfortunately for Trump, she says, undoing cli uh, Obama's climate legacy will require more than a stroke of a pen. As Trump learned... 
when he uh, when he signed a half-baked order meant to fulfill his Muslim travel ban promise, there were scores of lawyers at the ready for to challenge his efforts. That's even more true when facing down environmental groups, she argues. To make things even harder for Trump, environmental lawyers are backed by a heavy amount of legal precedent that has established that the EPA is required to do its job and that scientific evidence matters when it comes to environmental regulation. Not just not just due to common sense, by the way, but it actually matters in a court of law. All this executive order does, she says, is instruct federal agencies to reconsider existing rules. While there is no doubt that Pruitt would love to, that's Scott Pruitt, the uh, EPA administrator who hates the EPA. While there's no doubt that Pruitt would love to gut rules designed to combat climate change, there are legal restraints on what he can do. And she gives uh, one example here, a, uh, a 1946 law requires courts to, quote, hold unlawful and set aside agency action findings and conclusions that are found to be arbitrary, capricious and an abuse of discretion or otherwise not in accordance with law. Uh, Therefore, she quotes uh, Vera Pardi, a senior uh, counsel at the Center for Biological Diversity's Climate Law Institute, uh, saying that Pruitt's justifications for rewriting Obama-era rules must be, quote, reasonable, non-arbitrary, non-capricious explanations as to why the reams and reams of scientific material gathered by the EPA under Obama to justify these rules somehow no longer apply. Because the new president says so, that doesn't count. Yeah, that's not good enough. So they're actually going to have to show... That science was wrong, and here's the right science, or you know, otherwise give a reason to the courts for making these uh, for making these changes. That's very good. I think that may hold us in good stead. Um, the biggest precedent Marcotte notes is the uh, the 2007 Supreme Court decision, which determined that the EPA in about 2007, that was during George W. Bush, uh, determined that the EPA is required to regulate greenhouse gas emissions under the Clean Air Act, which defines any pollutant as something that can, quote, reasonably be anticipated to endanger public health or welfare. That case, she notes, was a response to the George W. Bush administration's attempt to wiggle out of its legal duty to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. Remember, Desi Doyen? Oh, yeah. Remember that email that they would not open from the EPA that uh, the enda- I guess that was the endangerment finding? Yes, this was wa- back when the Bush administration, EPA, went through a very laborious process that they tried to slow walk and they finally could not uh, not declare that carbon dioxide was warming the planet and that they could global, not not declare they could it? not not determine okay. that they could not get away with uh, trying right. to say that it wasn't happening they couldn't get away with trying to say it wasn't going to impact human health so they sent the email saying okay yeah here it is here's our endangerment finding that climate change does endanger human health and the bush administration didn't open it they waited until they left and then the obama administration epa had to go through the whole process all over again 
And they finally came to that and, conclusion. And they didn't want to open it because they didn't want to be informed that, yes, right. uh, carbon was be, a danger. That, that then they would have to take action on it. Right. That would trigger them, requiring right. them to take legal action on it and uh, regulatory action on it. The Supreme Court decision says if the EPA finds that it's an endangerment, then the EPA must regulate. So that's where the law is right now. And uh, Amanda Marcotte goes on to note that uh, Trump's task then is to succeed where Bush failed. She says in 2008, uh, the idea that someone could be worse than Bush at his job might have sounded like a high mountain to scale. But Trump has shown in just a few short months in office that it can be done. Things I get from In terms of fighting climate change, one of the most effective pieces of low-hanging fruit to start our shift to a renewable energy future is to sign up for renewable energy in our homes and offices. Depending on where you live, renewable energy may even be cheaper than that of old fossil fuel sources, and of course, you only have to sign up once and reap the rewards effortlessly indefinitely. To sign up, just visit cleanchoiceenergy.com best. If they don't service your area now, They have plans to come your way soon. So don't wait. There's nothing stopping you from signing up to use renewable energy right now, and it's easier than you may think. Again, visit cleanchoiceenergy.com slash best to get started. When it comes to energy, now you have a choice. In the United States, solar energy now provides twice as many jobs as the coal industry. It's creating jobs at a much faster pace than coal. It creates jobs at a rate 17 times faster than the overall economy. Solar is more rapidly becoming cheaper. We've been covering the increased efficiency of the physical solar panels for many, many years. And yet solar energy still makes up only about 1% of the total power supply in the United States. 40 coal plants were decommissioned in 2016. No new ones were built. And meanwhile, the solar industry broke tons of records for new installations in 2016. 14,000 megawatts of new power from solar were added in 2016. And this is creating many new jobs, including in construction. That's interesting because Donald Trump claims he wants to create construction jobs. It takes about 18 months to build a large scale solar farm and usually local labor is used. And while solar farms are just in specific locations, solar panel installation on the rooftops of of commercial and residential buildings are creating jobs all over the country. Coal cannot say that about itself. The solar industry is also creating tons of American jobs in sales and manufacturing. There's actually a report from the Solar Foundation which found that 44 out of 50 states at least doubled their number of solar energy jobs last year. There are very few industries that can claim that. And many of the jobs are also available to people who might otherwise struggle to find a decently paying job. These are the people that Donald Trump claims that he wants to help an entry level worker without a college degree could possibly double their salary within a year from 10 bucks an hour for simple manual labor to 20 bucks an hour working within the solar industry. Trump talked about he loves the uneducated, right? Andrew, Andrew, Andrea, I hope I'm pronouncing the last name right, Lecky, 
president and executive director of the Solar Foundation, told the site coexists that, quote, this is just an incredible example of the opportunities that exist for people that need these opportunities the most. You don't see that level of mobility within retail or food service or hospitality or janitorial, which is where most people who don't have higher education are forced to look. The solar industry does provide a new option, even compared to natural gas, wind and nuclear. Solar is creating more jobs and notably, despite the increased presence of robots in so many industries, solar is still creating jobs. The U.S. currently produces about 39 gigawatts using solar by some estimates by 2021 will be producing about 100 gigawatts using solar. A study found that the U.S. has the capacity for 200,000 gigawatts of solar energy production. That is 2000 times the estimated 2021 capacity. Government should be helping solar energy expand tax credits for investment requirements to have solar power on new construction, like San Francisco's new law requiring all new buildings to have solar panels. But we're actually going in the opposite direction. We have a president that wants to expand dirty forms of energy like coal that employ increasingly few people and are terrible for the environment. The world is laughing at us. The and world we, is laughing. at We us. can't turn back now and try to save a dying industry when we have new technology here that's not only creating more jobs at this point, but it's also just way greener. There is no argument for coal over solar unless part of your argument is lining the pockets of big political donors and maintaining the kleptocracy and the oligarchical crony capitalist system. That's the only argument for pushing coal over solar, because there is no data that supports doing it. And we have someone at the highest position of power who is actually taking it almost like a, a, as something to brag about that he is going to try to restore some coal jobs in West Virginia and he is missing the forest for the trees. Doesn't mean we don't care about those West Virginia workers, but they would be way better served being retrained within the solar industry. I was born on this mountain. This is where I was raised. Then I went north to work the factories. I knew I'd come back someday. When I did, things were different. This land was run by massive coal. Taking tops off of the mountains, burying the streams below. And it's cold, dust covered houses, run down towns, play a mournful tune. The land is gone, but once lived on. During the Republican presidential campaign, uh, uh, the primary, the Republican debates, we heard Republicans very briefly tell us that the United States cannot go it alone when it comes to reducing carbon emissions. After all, what's the point in the United States cutting back on our carbon emissions when other countries like China are just spewing carbon into the atmosphere, negating everything that we do here in the United States. So why bother, right? That's the rationale that Republicans used in 2015 and 2016. And that helped lead to Donald Trump 
uh, this past week, signing an executive order to completely undo the environmental protections put in place by former president Barack Obama, specifically requiring the environmental protection agency to take a good look at the clean power act and basically try to repeal it piece by piece saying that it kills jobs rather than helps the American economy. Um, something that is completely untrue. The clean power plan would have added far more jobs to the economy, uh, than it would have, uh, taken away from the coal industry, which is already dying. But Donald Trump tells us we're bringing those coal jobs back. They're coming back, but you know who doesn't agree with him? Coal company CEOs who have admitted in the last week that no, those coal jobs that are lost. Yeah, they're never coming back, but We've already stripped a uh, pension and healthcare protection away from existing coal miners. So, eh, right. I mean, it's kind of what the, the Trump administration is doing here. And now we're taking away the restrictions that prevent them from spewing carbon and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere at a fevered pitch. But here's the big irony. The United States right now is moving backwards on climate policy. The same thing we accused other countries of doing, or at least the Republicans accused other countries of doing during the campaign. Meanwhile, the rest of the planet is actually moving forward. Uh, those horrible polluters that the Republicans mentioned during those debates, uh, specifically China and India, they have more aggressive climate change negating programs than we do here in the United States. China just announced that in Beijing, a city with, I think about uh, 72,000 fossil fueled, uh, taxi cabs, they're replacing all of those with a fleet of all electric vehicles, zero emissions. And that's just in one city. India wants to go 60% renewable by the year 2027. And they're investing the money to make sure that that happens. One of the largest, uh, carbon emitters on the planet is going to be 60% renewable by 2027. That's their goal, a loftier goal than anything the United States has ever set. So I ask you this Republicans, specifically Marco Rubio, who's the one who made that claim. How do you feel now? The United States was a global leader on climate change. We were, we were setting the pace. We put uh, in motion the Paris climate accord. We're the ones who got other people to sign on. We were leaders. And now we're in last place. We're looking to other countries like China and India and everywhere in Europe to save our asses because we want to help out the fossil fuel industry. We want to make false promises about coal jobs just so we can screw over the environment. We are losers now. We're those idiot polluters that you Republicans love to trash on that debate stage. That's us now, and it's all because of you.
this is almost like uh, Walmart coming in and, and basically saying, like, you guys, uh, uh, you, you know, we're, we're going to bigfoot you in this town. We're going to squash uh, the competitors. And in terms of our suppliers, we're either you're going to live or die based upon whether or not you meet our terms. It's it it feels that way to me, Sam. I I you know maybe I'm I'm jumping the gun a little bit, but I'm just this is what I see. Uh, this is what I see. Everybody who's walking into the Trump administration, literally everybody. We could go down the list. Well, let's I mean, go down that list because I wonder, right, like, right. how does what is the interplay if if this is? I mean, you know, and and we can look at guys like uh, Pruitt, right? Who is in right. there at the head of well, that's, EPA? That's an obvious one, and, right? This is a climate change denier who's going to be the head of the EPA. And I mean, his co the co chair of his reelect campaign, I think in twenty fourteen, was Harold Hamm, who is exactly. a a, ha- a huge Harold Hamm is the CEO of Continental. He was supposedly the pick for energy secretary before he said no. And uh if you don't know, Continental Resources is the largest, actually it's the second largest fracker in the Bakken in North Dakota. Um and Harold Hamm controls that company. And who did he pick to 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 head up energy? Uh well he picked uh Oops Guy. Right. You know, Rick Perry. And he's, you know, from Texas, nothing but an oil lover. I mean, we could we could go down the list. So there's um let me see how many more I can just think of off the top of my head. You talked about Pruitt at the EPA. Zinke, who's the interior secretary, is is a big fan of of drilling for coal and oil on public lands. He's the head of the interior department. Huh. I mean, you get um um Gary Cohn, who's coming in as the, the Council of National uh, of Economic Advisors. Um, he's he, they talk about him like he's a, a, a Goldman Sachs guy, and he is. He's president of Goldman Sachs. But many people don't know that he cut his teeth on the New York Mercantile Exchange, where I was, trading oil. He's an oil guy. The secretary of the Army coming in is Vinnie Viola. This is the secretary of the Army. He cut his teeth standing right next to me in the in the gasoline pits at the New York Market Luncheon. He's an oil trader. Carter Page, who's their big guy in in um, in Russia, who's part of their economic uh, their 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 economic uh, their foreign policy group in the election. He he started. He was in Russia for for years working as a uh, consultant to Gazprom and started his own um, uh, hedge fund called um, Global Energy Capital. I mean, you can go down the list one after the other of guys who uh, have not small connections, but the the, the head of commerce, um, 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 Ross, right. Wilbur Ross. Wilbur Ross. One of his, he runs a hedge fund. One of his largest um, um, uh, investments is with Exco Resources. It's a natural gas company in the United States, and it's been a lousy investment for him. He'd love a chance to help make that a winner. As opposed to a loser. So Carl Icahn is part, you know, he's, right. he's, he's got huge investments in, in, in an offshore company called Transocean and with copper mines in, in Indonesia. I mean, you just, you can't get away from it. It's all resources everywhere you look. And so what is the relationship between, um, opening up uh, all the lands? I mean, actually drilling more in this country what is the relationship between that and the potential uh glut that it produces with our international relations i mean how you know because it seems i mean to someone like me who's not as well educated about this at all it seems like those are uh there's a little bit of tension there right i mean uh, if we're going to keep producing uh, extraordinary amounts of, of oil domestically, um, how does that uh, implicate our relations with Russia or with uh, Saudi Arabia and whatnot? 
Okay, well, look, uh, from my perspective and from most oil analysts' perspective, well, I wouldn't say most, but here's the point. This has been an outlier the last two years. Low energy prices, low natural resource prices, low copper prices um, has been a real outlier. In general, since the turn of the century, we've been seeing a steady rise in the costs of natural resources, and most people – me particularly, but most people think that this has just been a bump in the road caused by various other financial factors and what has been a short-term overproduction, particularly in oil and gas here in the United States. But that fundamentally not only will change, but if you, if you know, if you gave me an hour, I can explain to you why it has to change. So prices that you're seeing now for gasoline, oil, natural gas, coal, even copper for sure, zinc, iron, all of these things, they're unnaturally low. And over the course of the next four or five years, you know, in my view, triple, all of them, triple. And, you know, again, if you had an hour, I could prove that to you. Now, most analysts don't go there because they can't go there. They, you know, they, they have an obligation to investors not to be wrong. So they can't make wild predictions. But if you talk to people who are inside, they know that these prices are unsustainable. They know that they're headed up. The only question is how fast and how far. Right. So that, that's really where we are. We, we have a group of people inside the White House coming into the White House who understand that fundamental fact that the prices that we're staring at for oil, gas, and other resources are unnaturally low, and they won't stay that way. So, so this is basically this is they're basically using our government as a huge buying opportunity. Yeah, it's look. This is this is a corporatocracy we're building here. This is you know if you thought you know what's good for General Motors is good for the the country. I look. I'm looking. I'm working on a long long form piece, which I hope will be picked up by somebody. But it's called the Exxon presidency. I mean, this is what this is going to be about. It's not going to be talked about. They'll talk, you know, they'll, like you say, they'll talk about the PP jokes or whatever. And they'll, they'll, you know, they'll talk about what, you know, whatever mistakes, you know, of, of Ivanka, you know, had when she was whatever. But right. this is the, these are the big, big issues that will affect us and affect the world globally um, over the course of the next four years of Trump. It's about this, this damage. Impossible to turn back damage that will be done by this um, singular mobilization of resources. My country is a sweet land of industry. We'll break your back. Feeling that I think so many people had during the aftermath of Katrina 
which was like, is that this is too sci-fi? It's it's too sci-fi that that Blackwater is here. It's it's too sci-fi that this is being seen as a site for profit. Let's not forget that the other thing that was happening in New Orleans is that white vigilantes were hunting black people on the streets. Um, let's not forget that the New Orleans Police Department has had to p- pay settlements because their police officers were shooting black people to keep them from getting to safety. That future is already here. Uh, I, you know, and I just one other note. I remember when we were in New Orleans seeing Israeli security guards that had been flown by helicopter from Texas into New Orleans, and they deployed outside of a, a gated community. And when I interviewed them, they, they were from a company called um, ISI, uh, Instinctive Shooting International. And they were there. Some of them were, you know, veterans who had been in Lebanon, you know, of, of the Israeli intelligence or armed forces, been in Lebanon, been in Palestine. And here they were with semi-automatic weapons deployed in defense of the rich in New Orleans. We're joined now by two journalists who've just returned from New Orleans. On the line from Canada is writer and author Naomi Klein. Her piece in The Nation is called Purging the Poor. And we're joined in our studio by Democracy Now! correspondent Jeremy Scahill. I remember those days. We need to look really, really closely at these models, right? This is not about the future. This is about the present. If we want, and this is where the road we're on leads, right? So Rex Tillerson, now Secretary of State, when he was CEO of Exxon, after this company conducted their own climate change research in the 1970s, cutting edge climate change research, they were taking CO2 samples off of their oil tankers publishing articles, their own scientists saying, yes, this is happening, yes, this is real, does this about turn in the 90s and pours money into climate change denial. Exxon knew all about climate change. They knew about it before Hansen testified before on Capitol Hill in 1988 and said, yes, it's happening, humans are causing it. They knew all about it. They were already rejigging their operations, thinking about, and this you know, has come out in the in investigative reporting, by Inside Climate News, um, by the LA Times, you know, so now we know what they knew, when they knew it, or some of it, right? That they were looking at the opportunities that would come from melting Arctic ice and the ability to, to drill for oil. They were planning to raise their drilling rigs to compensate for sea level rise. They knew all about it. And yet they poured millions into very, very strong lobbying to keep the U.S. from signing the Kyoto Protocol, full-page ads in the New York Times taken out by Mobile saying the science isn't clear. They knew the science was clear. Pouring money into climate change denial, spreading doubt. We lost decades because of this company. Finally, Rex Tillerson, I think it was in 2011, publicly says, yes, climate change is happening, but humans will adapt right? So if if you can't grow food in one place, humans have always adapted. Now, how do humans adapt to not being able to grow food, Jeremy? They move. They, they seek safety. They do what humans do and have a human right to do. But we now are in this era of fortressed continents, continents fortressing themselves, using these same private contractors. I mean, this is Eric Prince's new business, right? Front, What's it called? Frontier Services? Yeah, Frontier something. Services Group. So he pitches himself to the European Union as the guy who's going to keep the boats from ever getting there. These privatized camps on islands, on Nauru, on Manus, where the Australian government intercepts ships, flies migrants fleeing war zones to these camps that are run by private contractors. By the way, this is what caused Donald Trump to hang up 
on the Prime Minister of Australia because there was a deal made between Obama and Malcolm Turnbull, uh, the Prime Minister of Australia, to take some of those refugees because the Australian government is so determined not to let them into their country. You know, Rex Tillerson says humans adapt, but yet he's working for an administration that understands actually how humans are adapting is by turning people who dare to try to find safety into criminals. Something's happening Someone's given a speech Saying it's not alright now And it never will be at a time like this, it's more important than ever to keep our independent media well-funded. Of course, not everyone can afford to chip in, so take a moment to think about your own circumstances and ask yourself if you're in a position to stand up when you know others can't. On my website, under the Contribute tab, you can sign up to donate any amount you want on a one-time or monthly basis. PayPal is the default method, but I know a lot of people prefer not to use them, so I have an alternative available for you to use, and you can find all the details to that on the same Contribute page. If you sign up to donate $6 a month or more, that's less than a dollar an episode, you get access to a members-only podcast, including commercial-free versions of the show, as well as occasional bonus episodes I make in which I tell some stories and mull over some big ideas. So again, if you have the means to support independent media, I hope you'll begin to contribute to whatever sources you get the most value out of, and you can support this show by going to the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Thanks to all of those who have already signed up, and thanks in advance to all who will. Something's happening. You write that navigating the path toward a low-carbon future in the era of Trump then means giving ordinary people a stake in climate po policy and making it about much more than science. That's exactly what the organization People's Action hopes to do. You also write that how uh, People's Action is rooted in Saul Alinsky-style community organizing. The national organization has in recent years adopted climate change and the environment as central issues alongside local and state efforts to beat back austerity. Making these two fights one and the same has led to the group's greatest successes, says Jordan Estevao, one of its senior strategists. How much does single-issue advocacy then undermine the ability to challenge the Trump administra administration? How much do do you think a shortcoming on the left or even of the Democratic Party has been the inability or unwillingness to connect issues together, to stress and even exploit, if you will, the connections between things like the environment, racism and poverty for a more holistic or even intersectional approach to politics and organizing? To you, what explains why these links seemingly have not been made in the past? Yeah, I think you know, something important to bring up here is that there are, you know, parts of the environmental movement very broadly which have, um, have been making these connections for many years. So environmental justice sites, uh, most of them in communities of color and working class communities um, who are dealing with, with the toxic impacts of the extractive industry, um, make, make, these, make these connections, um, you know, really organically um, because they're not, they're not, they're not abstract. Um, but, but I think here, you know, I'm, I'm sort of talking about um, a very specific set of, you know, very large green organizations, things like the Environmental Defense Fund, um, which, which, you know, have not had a, a historic connection to, um, to grassroots, to, to grassroots states and, and to, you know, any, any idea that um, the fight against climate change could be intersectional, that it could be 
uh, something that, which gives working people um, a stake. And, 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 you know, this has been disastrous, I think, for, for the climate fight. Um, we, we see things like cap and trade, which is a policy that has virtually no, um, virtually no impact on, on working people's lives. You know, no reason for any person off the street who has not, you know, probably doesn't have an MPA or something. Uh, to, to, it's very hard to get people to, to care about it because there's, there's almost no connection to, um, you know, trying to put food on the table, to uh, trying to put a roof over your head or, or, you know, bring down your rent or whatever. Um, and, and sites like the one, one people's action are fighting are really interesting. I think a, a, an interesting model for um, what it looks like to have a, a really intersectional and, and thoroughly uh, solidaristic climate movement, which is that, you know, it, it, everybody kind of wants to bring down their power bill. And that's something that, that's an inordinate burden um, for, uh, for poor folks. Uh, but the poorer you are, the, more, the larger percentage of your income that you pay um, to, to just keep the lights on. And so, Sites like that and, and kind of refocus uh, the, the 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 you know central point of, of the climate movement away from uh, how do we keep less gases in the air? How do we um, you know make make a, a global agreement? Um, to how do we bring down the electricity bill? How do we uh, make your communities safer uh, to live in, uh, in and make sure that you can drink your water? I think it's a, a really hopeful kind of reframe. Uh, about about what constitutes the climate fight, um, and it's not that all those things, other things aren't true. It's not that we don't need um, to, to bring down emissions. It's not that we don't need to, um, to 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 you know stay in things like the Paris Agreement. But uh, having that be the singular focus of what we talk about when we talk about climate change, uh, I think is really politically dangerous and, and leaves out a whole lot of people who I think could be you know, really powerful members of, of this fight. Um, and are, are very needed members of this fight. And, and in order to, to get people involved, you should give them a stake in it. And, and, and you know, it's, it's much easier to have a stake in bringing down your electricity bill than in uh, making sure a global agreement gets passed. You write this new approach to fighting climate change might look something like the political revolution underway in Nebraska, where pipeline fighters and Sanders Democrats, Bernie Sanders supporting Democrats, have taken control of their state Democratic Party. Thanks to Sanders' win in the state's Democratic caucus in March, his supporters made up the majority of delegates to the party's June convention. These delegates helped vote a state of progressive reformers into the party's top positions. And then you add later on that this kind of bottom-up, movement-driven politics taking root on Nebraska ranches and California oil fields is antithetical to the way the current Democratic establishment operates. But if the party hopes to stop its slide into oblivion and pose a real challenge to Trump's right-wing populism, it will have to take its cues from local leaders who are trying a different way of doing things. How is this opposite to the way the Democratic Party currently operates? How would Democrats rather these people be organizing other than what you see taking place in Nebraska and California and with groups like People's Action? Well, the Democratic Party of the last 20 years would just rather these people not be organizing, I think. Uh, the Democratic strategy, uh, which came to a kind of disastrous end and then you know showed itself as a failure in, 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 on November 8th, uh, has been to target increasingly small numbers of people. And so to go after really safe demographics uh, in, in strategical locations and, you know, create algorithms which say you, you don't need to go to Pennsylvania, you don't need to go to Wisconsin, 
uh, because, you know, the, the, the strategic fight, and, as, as the Democratic Party saw it, was contesting for these very small um, groups of people rather than have anything like a 50-state strategy, um, anything, you know, that had any, any kind of tone, even populism or, or you know, intonation of connection to working people. The Democratic Party has assumed um, that people of color, that uh, working class people, and would, would come to their side um, because the Republicans were so horrible. Uh, that Donald Trump in this election was so horrible um, and, and just sort of banked on the fact that um, the opponent was, was so ugly, which they are, of course, um, to, you know, to win votes. And it didn't work. It, it simply didn't work. I mean, what's happening in Nebraska um, is, is, is that you know, there's a new crop of Democratic leadership that's coming up. Uh, you see this, you know, I think in, in people like Ian Club, but also... Uh, folks like Keith Ellison, uh, folks like Bernie Sanders, um, and and you know I think a lot of leaders who maybe are not running yet, um, but who are instead leading social movements, who are out in the streets, you know, fighting for uh, fighting in movements like Occupy and, and the movement for Black Lives, um, the immigrant rights movement, um, who are really the leadership that the Democratic Party really needs, and 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 the energy of the base uh, is, is with people like Bernie Sanders, is with this sort of uh, anti anti establishment message um, that the Democrats seem seem totally incapable of of, of, of ingesting uh, and and of even acknowledging. You know, there's a click with with Nancy Pelosi responding to an NYU sophomore who asked, you know, can can the Democrats move left economically? And her answer was, you know, we're capitalists. We're, we're um, this is this is what we do, and, and shows this real sort of divide between um, what the actual future of the Democratic Party is if it wants to survive. And where what the Democrats are doing right now, and the leadership is, you know, I think incapable of doing their jobs of the Democratic Party. And so, um, I think we do need this kind of low carbon, uh, multiracial populism um, that that can, you know, inject the Democratic Party with a winning spirit. Not just because it's the right thing to do, not just because it's the right thing to to have young folks and people of color kind of leading um, leading the party, but because it's the strategic thing to do as well. When are you You reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, get in the streets for the March for Science and the People's Climate March. If you've been waiting for the second coming of the Women's March, this could be it. Two major rallies, both of which have had months of planning, preparation, and outreach, are scheduled on back-to-back weekends at the end of April. On Earth Day, April 22nd, scientists around the world will march side-by-side with those who believe in science and want to defend it from climate deniers, religious extremists, oil and coal companies, and, of course, the Trump administration. On the March website, the organizers write, quote, The march has generated a great deal of conversation about whether or not scientists should involve themselves in politics. In the face of an alarming trend toward discrediting scientific consensus and restricting scientific discovery, we might ask instead, can we afford not to speak out in its defense? Unquote. 
Go to marchforscience.org to learn more about the details of the march, and if you can't make it to D.C., find one of the 480 satellite marches near you. You can also follow the march on Twitter, at ScienceMarchDC. After the March for Science, you have a week to rest up and then get in the streets again for the second People's Climate March. In 2014, I was proud to be one of over 400,000 people who marched in the streets of New York City for the first People's Climate March on the eve of the UN Climate Summit, demanding urgent action on the global climate crisis. We made history, and our numbers and voices could not be ignored. Limited but important progress was made. The second march, taking place on the 100th day of the Trump administration, is a fight to protect those gains and continue to push to make the climate crisis impossible to ignore. As with every single political issue, climate is intersectional. The march aims to advance climate justice for all, especially frontline communities and workers, stop attacks on immigrants, communities of color, indigenous and tribal people and lands, protect our right to a clean and healthy environment and a peaceful world, preserve workers' rights, including the right to unionize, fund investments in our communities to transition to clean and renewable energy economies, and protect our basic rights to free press, protest, and free speech. Go to peoplesmarch.org to learn more about the march, and if you can't make it to D.C., find one of the sister marches happening across the country and around the world. You can also follow the march on Twitter at peoples underscore climate. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if you believe in science and saving humanity from climate change, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about the March for Science and the People's Climate March via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. As the People's Climate Movement has always said, to change everything, we need everyone. So let's show up for our future and claim it. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now? Because that's how we make a difference. In this fickle world of change, there is all this fantastic, amazing, excellent, very good news going on when it comes to things like renewable energy. The fact that we are fighting about this nonsense, right? Uh, you know, is just so distressing if you look at the facts. Uh, Joe Rome who we've had on this show many times uh, in the past, uh, writing over at Climate Progress. Uh, cites this report from the Solar Energy Industries Association. And mind you, Joe Rome is an actual scientist. An uh, actual scientist who used to work for the uh, Department of Energy, Department of Assistant Energy. Secretary of Energy. He's a physicist. He knows right. his stuff. Therefore, don't pay any attention <laughs> to any of this stuff coming from Joe Rome. Uh, the United States installed a record-smashing 14,762 megawatts of solar power in 2016. That's a 97% jump over 2015. That, according to data released uh, last week, the industry reports uh, that for the first time ever, solar, solar was the number one source of new generating capacity, beating out uh, both wind and gas. And they've got this, uh, he's got this chart 
from this report from the Solar uh, Energy Industries Association uh, showing just this huge, it's been solar uh, installations have been increasing uh, sort of slowly but surely since 2008, uh, getting more and more, more quickly. And then, boom, just in 2016, it absolutely just Oh, yeah, it dwarfs the rest of the chart. I mean, you have to actually, they had to actually extend the chart right, exactly. in order to show just how much 2016 has grown over just 20, 2015. This report predicts that, uh, quote, total installed U.S. solar capacity is expected to nearly triple over the next five years. The report is uh, full of amazing charts, he notes, factoids about the industry's growth. For instance, on average in 2016, a new megawatt of solar capacity came online every 36 minutes. That's uh, 40 megawatts a day. The price for solar systems fell nearly 20% last year, the greatest average year-over-year uh, price decline since the report began tracking such prices. That That is on top of an 80% price drop that occurred from 2008 to 2015. This is all really good. Uh, but here it gets better. That and, and this is something you would think Donald Trump would want to jump in and somehow take credit for if he wants to. Fine, let him. Uh, the new report comes on the heels of news that more than 200,000 people now work in the U.S. solar industry. And it's a major industry milestone that new uh, that new installed solar capacity topped new capacity from either wind or gas. Ultimately, the ongoing price drops in solar coupled with the equally remarkable price drops in battery storage and the ever more visible impacts of carbon pollution mean that renewables must inevitably beat fossil fuels even in this country. But by putting his thumb on the scale against solar, Rome writes, uh, President Trump can certainly slow the transition and ensure other countries reap the biggest benefits. Trump, after all, campaigned on zeroing out clean energy funding, rolling back climate action, boosting coal use. Bloomberg reports uh, recently that the White House is planning to slash the budget of the Energy Department, uh, the specific office that helps develop and advance clean energy. If Team Trump also succeeds in revoking the EPA's clean power plan, Rome writes, that could give a temporary boost to coal and gas domestically, but it is only temporary. Yeah, those jobs in coal are not going to come back. That They've been basically decimated by automation, not just competition in the market, but automation as well in coal. But the jobs are coming back uh, big time when it comes to renewable energy, oh, yeah. as this report shows yet again. Donald Trump could jump right on in here and take credit for all of this, all of these new jobs that we now know are going to be coming online. All of this solar power that is coming online, whether he slows it, whether Trump slows it down or not, this is going to happen. The rest of the world is going to do it. We're going to, you know, lose out to the rest of the world, but it is going to happen. Yeah, this is a race to sell the technology to the rest of the world, not just, you know, homegrown domestic manufacturers putting solar panels on rooftops that cannot be shipped to China. So you can't get other countries to put the solar panels on your roof. Exactly. You know, this is a long term infrastructure that that could, if you as you've mentioned, that Trump could take credit for. But he's instead focusing on the fossil fuel industry and building what's going to people. be. Yeah, those are going to be obsolete 
obsolete very soon, you know, hopefully within our lifetimes if we're all very Those lucky. are his people. Those and, are his, his, uh, his, his secretary of state, of course, comes from ExxonMobil. I got a story on that. I want to try to get to it in a okay. quick moment. Uh, have, but just real quick, yeah. that China has on the books plans to install enough solar over the next year to actually equal the capacity of what France and Germany already have installed right now. Sales also of uh, plug-in electric vehicles were up uh, $2.5 billion. That's a 48% increase. Uh, last year, investment in uh, charging infrastructure is up 11% over last year. Trump wants to do this big infrastructure plan. Why not charging infrastructure all over the country? And why aren't unions? I think I'm surprised that unions are not getting more involved. The uh, trade unions that in our building, engineering, uh, electricians, all of those unions, it seems like they would also be making a push for this kind of infrastructure. Because retrofitting, oh, I don't know, every single home in America... Seems like it would be a big jobs program. This uh, charging uh, infrastructure, by the way, up 11 percent. That's a 600 percent increase since 2011. This is a booming business. Uh, 2016 was a very good year for the advanced energy economy. Uh, It's not a culture war. It's an industry. Uh, The group says uh, there are different ways of viewing uh, the industry than AEEs. Uh, but just about any way you slice it, the story is the same. Rapid growth and lots of jobs. We just heard clips today, starting with the Young Turks breaking down Trump's shredding of Obama's environmental rules and explaining the crony capitalism that allows corporations to not pay for their pollution. The broadcast explained why rolling back Obama's clean energy plan may be harder than Trump thinks. The David Pakman Show showed that there is no data that supports favoring coal over renewable energy other than cronyism. Ring of Fire Radio shamed the Republicans for turning us into exactly that which they had accused others of being— The Majority Report discussed all those who surround Trump and make him the Exxon president. Intercepted spoke with Naomi Klein about how adaptation, humans' instinct to move and adjust to changing circumstances, is completely at odds with wealthy nations' instinct to put up their guard and not allow anyone in. This is Hell focused on the need to remake the Democratic Party as a means to fight climate change. Our activism for today is in support of the upcoming March for Science and the People's Climate March. And finally, we just heard the broadcast lamenting all of the distracting nonsense about ignoring climate change coming from conservatives in the face of such an obviously bright future for renewable energies. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. No voicemails today. I just want to give a couple more thoughts on on what you can do right now to fight coal and fight against climate change. Because yes, going and marching is critically important, but getting work done every day between marches is even more important. So the two places I want to send you, since we're focusing on coal and and that's the conversation right now, the Sierra Club, from what I'm hearing, is basically has the best anti-coal campaign going right now. It's called Beyond Coal. So if you want to get involved, get engaged, uh, get in touch with Sierra Club Beyond Coal, they are doing sort of a stealth campaign because it's not all about marching in the streets. It's about the hard 
nosed brass tacks <laughs> uh, version of campaigning where they're just going uh, coal plant by coal plant and literally getting them to shut down. And so, I mean, each each one is its own campaign. You know, each plant that they're uh, planning to retire and replace with renewable energies is its own campaign, which means they're working all over the country. So you may very well be able to join in an existing fight against a coal plant vaguely near you and and plug into that. So Sierra Club, Beyond Coal, check them out. And the other, I just wanted to say that in my former life, in the like tail end of the Bush administration, first year of Obama administration, that's the the range when I was working at a climate change nonprofit myself in the Washington D.C. area, and this organization focused on Maryland, D.C., and Virginia, and Southwest Virginia. Although it doesn't get talked about as much, is incredibly similar to West Virginia in terms of being coal country. You know, it's pockmarked land all over the place where their mountains have been blown into a moonscape and all the coal has been scraped off, all of the, you know, waste dirt has been pushed over into the streams. And of course, those are the same incredibly impoverished communities that have been dependent on the coal companies and horrifically uh, taken advantage of by those companies. So when I worked at that organization, the Chesapeake Climate Action Network. I was the videographer at the time. And so at least once, but maybe more than once, I went on trips down to Southwest Virginia to actually meet with our campaign partners who worked on the ground. And it was a really amazing experience to see these people in their own home fighting for their own communities. uh, Because just as is true for any community, of course. It's not like every person in a given area uh, thinks the same way, votes the same way, uh, or anything like that. So instead of what I was used to, you know what I'm talking about, the, the 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 coastal ivory tower types who I was usually hanging out with, the the journalists and the scientists and the, you know, EPA lawyers and all these kinds of people, you, you know, <laughs> who, who are all friends of mine. I say, I say that jokingly, but when you go down into Appalachia, you end up talking with just a grandmother with an incredibly thick Southern accent who's talking about her ancestral homeland and the hills that she remembers from her childhood and how those mountains are gone now because the coal companies have come and blown them up and scraped out the coal and left nothing but maybe a few grass seeds to help it regenerate. And it's a completely different uh, perspective, obviously. And so, you you know, you get, like I said, you know, the the grandmother with the southern accent or the, uh, you know, incredibly weather-worn, grizzled old man uh, looking out over a, a scene of a mountaintop removal site, lamenting that those mountains couldn't have been left there and had windmills put on top of them. Those are the kind of people living in those communities in Appalachia, fighting the fight on the ground, going to those town hall meetings with the coal company employees fighting these fights. So on one hand, be inspired by that, know that that fight is happening, know that those people are there, and also 
if you are in the Appalachian region, I mean, I know the, the fight against coal is is everywhere, but these are just the ones I happen to know about. Uh, so if, if you're anywhere in the Appalachian range and want to get involved on the ground, the group that I know about and can speak very highly of from a first-hand uh, basis is called Appalachian Voices. And actually, a song that was in today's show was pulled from an Appalachian Voices I think, I think it must have been a fundraising album that they put together full of community people who had written their own songs lamenting the existence of the coal companies, the, uh, you know, the loss of homelands, the, the loss of health due to coal industry uh, activity in their hometowns interspersed with interviews. And so, you know, that that album was around, you know, a decade ago. And, and so one of the songs today, the uh, the Blackened Moon song was from that album, just as a, you know, interesting side note. So as I say, if you're in the Appalachian region, you want to plug in on the ground. Uh, those are your people, Appalachian Voices. As always, keep the comments coming in. The number 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So come to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained See past our own sad stories and